freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here with Roxana Espos, Palace Shaw, and Light Ali, gathered in the spirit and the memory of Malik Alim for our seminar on freedom. That was the artist and freedom fighter Tom Morello with his signature anthem, Let Freedom Ring. Tommy shows up whenever and wherever people are coming together under the banner of freedom and in search of peace and justice. Last week, his band, Rage Against the Machine, was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and the next day, he was marching in the streets for a ceasefire in Gaza. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily into the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be but is not yet. We're heading over to Pilsen Community Books once more for an extraordinary gathering organized by the worker owners there to support and raise resources for our comrades in Atlanta fighting to stop Cop City. You can find them at at Stop Cop City, one word. Pilsen Community Books had invited several Chicago writers to read from their work, including Emin Abdelhadi, Nisha Bolsi, Jared Shanahan, Kelly Hayes, Talise Paul, Jean de Curti, Brad Thompson, Lamise Shawan, Maya Shenwar, and Barbara Ransby. But events ran ahead of us, as they often do, and by the time we gathered, the pre-announced genocide against the Palestinian people was in full swing. The connections were clear. Militarism and violence abroad and out-of-control militarized police forces at home. Land seizures and occupations everywhere. Repression and the violent suppression of dissent. The room was packed with activists, organizers, and families with kids. Please be tolerant and forgiving of the irrepressible sounds of the children playing in the background. We stood up and we spoke out for an immediate ceasefire, for an end to the genocide in Gaza and the murderous violence in the West Bank, for an end to Cop City in Atlanta, for self-determination for the Palestinian people, and for an end to U.S. aid to Israel. And here are a few excerpts from that evening. From Chicago to Atlanta to Gaza, we share the same struggle against Zionism, imperialism, and state repression. So from Chicago to Atlanta to Gaza, we must organize to stop cop cities everywhere and for a free Palestine. In the words of Tortuguita, the abolitionist mission isn't done until every prison is empty, when there are no more cops, when the land has been given back, that's when it's over. Before I turn tonight's program over to our amazing MC, Jana, I wanted to read a piece written from a sister struggle, the fight to stop Line 3 Tar Sands Oil Pipeline in Minnesota. Line 3 threatens communities, land, and water along its route, as well as the future of our climate. And in 2021, despite a decade of fierce resistance, Enbridge completed the construction of Line 3. 
Um, thousands of people, including many of my dear friends in this room, joined together to resist Line 3. Anishinaabe water protectors led this fight, asserting their sovereignty to oppose the construction of the extractive project to their lands. And after oil began flowing and we were all grieving, a group of organizers reached out to their community to collect stories and art from the resistance. And they made this beautiful anthology. So here's one of the pieces uh, from it, written by a collective of scientists and fellow travelers who dedicated their lives to the struggle. There was that time when we asked what scientists could do to help stop the Line 3 tar sands pipeline. We didn't have a good answer, but we found so many along the way. That time we went to the state house with dozens of our comrades and stood under the bloody Civil War murals while the governor's handlers talked to us like we were children. That time we ran through the state house chanting, singing, and found the next governor in a small office. That time the governor, Walls, his name a symbol of what he would become, lied to us, told us in soothing tones what he thought we wanted to hear. That time we knew he was lying. That time we wheeled live macroinvertebrates in coolers across the east bank of the river to show the people the abundance of life that depends on water. That time we bird dog Laura Bishop and didn't she cry? And Peggy Flanagan tried to evade us, but we ran her down. <laughs> that time we organized scientists to go back into that bloody room in the Capitol. We knocked on doors, knocking on the press door, the staffer being like, well, here's three chairs. And we were like, no, we need 50. <laughs> that time we spoke. That time we yelled. That time we reasoned, that time we knew, we knew. That time we tried to explain the process and we made a video because we knew the absurdity needed to be captured. That time we showed line three was a hot potato. That time we learned from indigenous teachers about indigenous sovereignty and our responsibilities as treaty people. And we are still learning. That night we sat together in someone's kitchen writing detailed reports, trying against their avalanche of data and money that mismatched power staring us in the face, but we had snacks. <laughs> that time we went to Clearbrook to confront Enbridge. It was Indigenous Peoples Day, a day of mourning, a day that we realized what rural white supremacy looks like. That time we first saw those beautiful banners, it was the same time we saw those tractors and we heard those screams and we saw the violence. The times we heard a leader say, what happens to the water happens to the women, to whole roomfuls of us, to friends and colleagues shaken to our core. That time we met with the pollution control agency about the permit and it sucked our souls out. That other time we got up at 3.30 a.m. to sit in the front row at the Public Utilities Commission to testify. We didn't have the matching shirts that Enbridge's paid attendees had with their donuts and their big buses, but we got up and we sat in the front row and that time we were seen. That time we went north, the cops or sheriffs or armed guards followed us, stopped us, talked to us, harassed us, threatened us. That time we talked back to them, allegedly. The times, so many times that we met, all of that time on signal, allegedly plotting and planning, but sometimes making jokes. The times we tried to figure out how to write collective public, public comments about permits, why there should be no permits, why we should not build line three. The times we made maps and diagrams, making visible the destruction across webs, networks of blue, across the green swath of floodplains. The times we each grappled with our identities, with posi positionality, with expertise, with who faces forward, with privilege, with whiteness, with solidarity, with justice. The time we spent all summer writing legal testimony. The time we saw the frack out in real time at Firelight. 
the times we were carried forward by the energy, the vigilance, the bravery of fellow water protectors. That time we had to talk down the park ranger of Atasca State Park from kicking people out of the headwaters press conference. The time we taught about the groundwater and the river waters and their relationship. All of the times we talked to the press so often like ramming our heads against the wall. That time Enbridge pretended to clean up the frack out with brooms and mops and buckets and no protective gear. And we thought it looked like a Photoshop picture, but it wasn't. That time we got the water samples and watched the drone footage and knew it had happened. That time we hung up the poster at the state fair and we're still laughing. That time all sweaty in the kitchen when we only had two hours to go through 200 pages, thanks Department of Natural Resources. <laughs> That time we confronted the governor for his support for tar sands and the Twin Cities Coalition for Justice for Jamar campaign confronted him first, and we felt the solidarity echo. That time at hard times, that time we confronted power, shouted at it, and we were told to be civil. We were told about free speech and process, and we were told it would all save us. Instead, we disrupted, and we told them about direct action, and we got kicked out for handing out pam pamphlets and the time it happened again and again. Those other times at hard times. The time we were there in the hot and dusty fields, in the sticky pavement, and the cold and lonely cells. The time we sang. The time we shut shit down, allegedly. <laughs> that time we stayed up all night long, stuffed in a van under the stars with nerves racked, dusty, tired, to be there when we got out of jail. That time we watched the gate, fixed it too, got caught in a rainstorm, and then the fat chipmunks came out to run through the garbage bags. That time we stayed up all night for our security shifts, listened to the sounds of the pipeline being built, seeing the glare from the lights, hearing the stream gurgle, feeling like we had already lost. That time the police pulled us over for no reason, and we feared being dragged back to jail. The time we spent trying to stop a mistake, a crime. The time we spent trying to make sure we all had a future. I appreciate uh, letting me share that. And now I have the honor to introduce Jana, our MC for the evening. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and is the author of States of Incarceration, co-author and editor of Trees into Whiteness, as well as he's Humanity and editor of the publication Card Crackers, which we have up front. Hey, guys. This is really an amazing space. And as we all know, these are difficult, hard, trying times. Um, and it's really nice to be amongst comrades, to be with each other, and to really be in spaces like this, right, where we could all be together on a Sunday, uh, you know, reading together, raising money for activists in Atlanta, drinking a little bit, you know, <laughs> and just having a good time. The, our second reader is going to be Misha Atali, who is a poet and organizer. She is a recipient of the Eileen Lanon Poetry Prize, and her work has been nominated for the Pushcart Prize, Best of the Net and Best New Poets. Her biggest inspiration is the ongoing centuries-long struggle to decolonize the world and uproot racial capitalism. So please, just walk away. It's such an incredible honor to be here, um, not only to be here with you all, but to just be reading in this lineup of incredible writers and thinkers and organizers that I deeply, <coughs> deeply admire. So thanks so much for having me to Tulsa Community Books and to all of you. 
um, when this fundraiser was first planned, um, the horrific genocide in Gaza had not yet begun. And so um, I'm going to try to use my time here uh, to sort of speak to both, but to speak to both through the, um, the, the very deep connections between the struggle for Palestinian liberation and the struggle against Cop City, because I think that those are connected on a very, very, very deep level. Um, so I was looking at uh, this piece that I wrote about Stop Cop City for <laughs> Rampant Magazine, and you know, countless other folks have pointed this out, but um, you know, months ago, uh, I had written that the struggle to stop Cop City is not only a campaign to stop construction of a police facility, it is a struggle to stop what has been centuries of continuous violence against Black and Indigenous peoples and against all other life forms as well. Um, and I think that that is uh, an important way that we can think about the connection between these two struggles. Um, every act seems to echo, for me, um, the settlers burning of Palestinian olive trees. In that act, we're reminded of the centuries of white supremacist violence um, to land and to people that stole Wilani and transformed it first into a plantation, then into a prison camp, and then, you know, in, into Cop City, which will never be built. But um, we see the U.S. government calling Palestinians terrorists, just like they called Tortuguita a terrorist. And everywhere, it feels like we're witnessing the same colonial imaginary stuck in this loop that we can't get out of. <clears throat> so... I mainly want to say land back from Turtle Island to Palestine. Um, this could not be a more urgent demand in this moment everywhere. <laughs> um, let us learn a new way to live in this moment, um, a life in which every being, whether an olive tree um, in Palestine, whether a chestnut tree in Wilani Forest, um, every child throwing a stone um, in the whole world is our kin. And with that in mind, I'm going to open um, with a poem, not by me, by um, the Palestinian poet, novelist, and teacher Hiba Abunada, um, titled I Grant You Refuge. Hiba was martyred mere days after she wrote this poem, um, but in it, um, she spoke of another world in which we are refuge for each other. And I really wanted to bring her voice um, into the space today. Um, and thank you to Huda Fakhreddin for the translation. I grant you refuge. One, I grant you refuge in invocation and prayer. I bless the neighborhood and the minaret to guard them from the rocket. From the moment it is a general's command until it becomes a raid. I grant you and the little ones refuge, the little ones who change the rocket's course before it lands with their smiles. Two. I grant you and the little ones refuge, the little ones now asleep like chicks in a nest. They don't walk in their sleep toward dreams. They know death lurks outside the house. <clears throat> their mother's tears are now doves following them, trailing behind every coffin. Three. I grant the father refuge, the little one's father who holds the house upright when it tilts after the bombs. He implores the moment of death. Have mercy, spare me a little while. For their sake, I've learned to love my life. Grant them a death as beautiful as they are. Four, I grant you refuge from hurt and death, refuge in the glory of our siege here in the belly of the whale. Our streets exalt God with every bomb. They pray for the mosques and the houses and every time the bombing begins in the north, our supplications rise in the south. Five. 
I grant you refuge from hurt and suffering. With words of sacred scripture, I shield the oranges from the sting of phosphorus and the shades of cloud from the smog. I grant you refuge in knowing that the dust will clear and they who fell in love and died together will one day laugh. Mm -hmm. And this is my last poem. Um, and this one I was especially thinking of um, Tortuguita when I wrote this. So I want to de dedicate this both to Tortuguita and all of the incredible people there right now um, facing down um, all the things that they're facing down um, to stop Cop City and also those um, fighting for a free Palestine right now in this moment um, to comrades. It's called Ode. A comrade is a sunflower that grows tall but slow. Mix their oil with yours to see what you can burn. Mix your garden with theirs and test grow new perennials in warm climates, forbidding climates, Superfund sites and abandoned lots. A comrade can be a friend, but need not be. A comrade crouches near you in tall grass. You are both hidden by reeds. The comrade is holding something. A comrade is always holding something. Placard, trowel, paintbrush, grief. In the chaos of a street lit by fire, a comrade may have water or matches or an armed to create a hinge which intersects yours. A comrade may be human, but need not be. Reeds shading your face, bison gritting teeth. Everywhere comrades with animal eyes, stare and claw and throw, reclaim land and ocean. A comrade may be dead, but in memory become comrade again. In the reeds, in the alleys, in the basements, on the rooftops. A comrade may grow in ocean or underground. For the rich, it's always summer. Hurricanes, forest fires, toxic fumes, jet diesel. But comrades make their own season. Slick snow over roots, sick winter over profits. You will never know them all. A honey fungus, one may surface thousands of miles away, but bear your same fruit. Um, and that is all free Palestine. So I want to go to the next person who is a really good friend of mine and one of my co-writers, hey, Jared, um, Jared <laughs> Shanahan, who is an activist, scholar, and educator in the Chicago area. He is the author of Captives, How Rikers Island Took New York City Hostage, co-author mm -hmm. States of Incarceration, an editor of Treason to Whiteness is Loyalty to Humanity, and an editor of the publication Heartcrackers Chronicles of Everyday Life. Please assist me in welcoming. What's up, everyone? I'm Jared. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, reading from my book, Captives. Uh, this is dedicated to everyone who's locked up right now for fighting for liberation. I hope you get out soon, one way or another. All right. Looking back on the year 1977, the New York City Board of Correction recalled ruefully that the year will, quote, be remembered as a year of many escapes from Rikers Island, end quote. Yeah. Totaling 35 successes to say nothing of attempts. 
These pushed the total of escapes from DOC custody since 1974 to 153. A steady stream of hacksaws winnowed its way into Rikers Island jails, enabling multiple exoduses, including from the maximum security area of the House of Detention for Men, reserved for prisoners deemed escape risks. <laughs> According to the Department of Correction, in one case, blades were smuggled into the jail, concealed inside fully functional ink pens, which family members had given to prisoners in court. Purportedly, these pens were capable of passing a basic contraband test by which the prisoner was made to uncap the pen and write with it to prove that it in fact contained an ink cartridge. For reasons that will soon be clear, however, it is a story that must be taken with a grain of salt. As DOC facilities crumbled and teamed, prisoners increasingly escaped in large groups, sometimes as many as eight at a time, by cutting their way out of HDM and other facilities. As in the early 1970s, these escapes demonstrated not only familiar patterns, but also featured a recurring cast of prisoners who at once rejected the authority of the DOC and undertook ingenious attempts to proactively free themselves from its custody. Their efforts challenged not just the power of the jail system, but the authority derived from politicians like Mayor Ed Koch, who based their fiscal austerity policies on their supposed ability to keep lawbreakers behind bars. In 1977, three adolescents locked up at Rikers Island's adolescent facility broke free crept to the guard's parking lot, commandeered a guard's car, and successfully drove straight off the island, past multiple checkpoints, to the freedom of suburban queens. <laughs> In response to this embarrassing breach of security, the Department of Correction hastily claimed that the young men had undertaken a sophisticated and highly cinematic jailbreak, <laughs> complete with meticulous timing of guards' comings and goings, and even a counterfeit badge to get past the checkpoints. It was a compelling story, but there was one problem. The New York City uh, Board of Correction concluded, and I quote, there was no evidence to sustain that story. <laughs> it looks to us like the inmates took advantage of two attentive, inattentive correction officers who simply weren't doing their jobs, end quote. Okay. Three years later, a trio of prisoners pulled off a quote-unquote carbon copy of this same escape, leaving a hapless guard's car at John F. Kennedy Airport for investigators to discover the following day. Less successful but no less bold were a group of 24 prisoners who took over a transport bus, moving them between Rikers Island facilities and attempted to drive it off the island. Their plot was foiled when the driver crashed the bus. Forgoing the bridge altogether, a quartet of prisoners inflated trash bags into makeshift rafts, greasing themselves and the bags with Vaseline to stay afloat. The bags proved insufficient to the task and burst, but one of the four nonetheless made it across. Subsequently, a pair of Rikers prisoners concealed themselves in a truck delivering stale bread to the Flushing Meadows Zoo. The duo's disappearance was only detected by the driver, whom they startled by hopping off the back of the truck on Grand Central Parkway and vanishing into the freedom of the queen's night. <laughs> you guys, there's 300 pages of this shit. <laughs> it's also being raffled. Oh, cool. 
and I, I will be signing it, which I'm told decreases the value of a chance. <laughs> <All right. laughs> One escape from this storied period stands out so spectacularly, however, that it prompted artist David Wanarovich to immortalize its protagonist as William Morales, put, uh, patron of prison breaks. <laughs> Part of the diminished but by no means vanquished revolutionary underground, William Guillermo Morales manufactured bombs for the Puerto Rican Armed Forces of National Liberation, FALN, who fought for an autonomous Puerto Rico. Morales and his comrades in the FALN had operated under the radar for years, detonating over 100 explosive devices throughout the mid to late 1970s, without a single member being arrested. On, January, on July 12, 1978, a bomb Morales was manufacturing in a house not far from Rikers Island detonated prematurely. The blast destroyed Morales' hands. Badly burned, maimed, bleeding profusely, Missing one eye and virtually blind in the other, Morales managed nonetheless to flush a number of incriminating FALN documents down the toilet before the police arrived. He then filled the apartment with gas, hoping to blow himself up along with the cops. Instead, Morales was captured. Despite his grave condition, he managed shortly thereafter to tell an NYPD detective from beneath layers of bandages, fuck you, fuck yourself. <laughs> In April of 1979, after Morales had been held for over a year at the prison ward of Bellevue Hospital, he was convicted of weapons charges and sentenced to 29 to 89 years behind bars. Prior to sentencing, Morales remarked, they're not going to hold me forever. One month later, his prediction was borne out. Morales managed to get a hold of a pair of 14-inch wire cutters, which NYPD suspected his attorney had smuggled to him, though she was never formally charged. With the help of a fellow prisoner, Morales subsequently affixed these cutters around his waist using shoelaces so that they dangled beneath his bathrobe. Over the course of the next two nights, despite having lost his hands and most of his sight, Morales cut a small hole in the metal grating covering his window. He then punched through the outside screen, produced a rope made of bandages, and began his descent from his third floor room, some 40 feet in the air. Waiting on the ground below were more than a dozen cadre from the remnants of the Black Liberation Army and the Weather Underground. And if anyone has any more details they'd like to add, just pipe up. All right. <laughs> the bandage rope apparently failed, sending Morales tumbling to an air conditioner unit that broke his fall and then onto the grass below. His comrades whisked him away to a New Jersey safe house from which he later made his way to Mexico, then to Cuba, where he lives today as a free man. All power to the people. <laughs> Thank you, Jared. So the next speaker we have, uh, Lemi Shawakin, I'm sorry, was born and raised in the Chicagoland area and is the daughter of immigrant and refugee community organizers. She's an educator, artist, and community organizer. She has published on racial stress and trauma, anti-Muslim prejudice, and social justice praxis. Her artwork centers on exploring experiences of Palestinians in the diaspora and celebrating trans-feminist community, solidarity, and liberation. Her organizing has focused on anti-militarism, anti-fascism, environmental justice, union organizing, Palestine solidarity, 
and creating safe social culture spaces for Swana people in the diaspora, all the while using an anti-authorian lens. Most importantly of all, she is a mama to a brilliant and sweet kid. I have two things I want to say. Oh, wow. A lot of people. Hi. Anytime I have a platform, I have to say something about Gaza. The situation has been dire and has gotten more and more grotesque with each passing day. A ceasefire is the first step toward any meaningful change. Right now, more than ever, we need to unrelentingly put our efforts toward demanding a ceasefire by any means at our disposal. Gaza Coalition is a group of activists connected to Gaza who are working directly with activists in Gaza, helping to guide U.S.-based solidarity efforts. You can follow them on Instagram at Gaza Coalition. It's Gaza underscore coalition. Um, I'm reading from my grandfather's book, This Is My Story. It's a poem by him. And before we get started, and um, my friend Iman is also going to read, but you'll hear about her later. Um, <laughs> she's going to help me read the Arabic part. And I wanted to read a, a little bit of the beginning intro of the poem before we get started. It's called To Whom I Write. He says, <clears throat> to a land exclusively to God dedicated, to a land the bestowed apostle has journeyed, our nation nowadays in most recesses degraded with bitter savor to brims our goblet loaded. Our controversies to enemies is a might. I say the truth and do not contrite. I am Jerusalem, Palestine's heart. I am the revolutionary Muslim poet. Okay, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> ثمنا للصمت والتشرد في متاهات السنين وليجعلوا من خيمتي سجنا أظل به رهين هل يفلحون ويخمدون لضاي والحقد الدفين كلا فقد ظمأ الفداء وحن الأسد العريم This is my story I joined the rail of Palestinian refugees I rejected the ration card and the flower a price given in return for my silence and dispersion into the unknown tunnels of the years, intended to make dungeons of tabernacles, to keep my soul in captivity no matter. Can they succeed in putting off all the fire? Nay, redemption is called for to attire. Aina al-arinu wa kayfa kana wa nakbati madha al-khabar. Hadha sharitu al-lajiina bihi al-haqaiq wa al-ibar. Qisasu al-uluf min al-thakala fi jahimin mustamir. فمن الخيانة الخيانة والرذيلة للضمير المنتحر اليوم تعلم لا غدا من كان كذابا أشر. The dens had longed for the lions. Where is the lion den and how it became? My plight is great. What is the matter? This is the long newsreel of the refugees. Full of facts and a thousand parables. The stories from a multitude of widows in hell. From treason and insolence to suicided conscience, today, not tomorrow, you become aware who is the devil and cunning liar. فإليك قصتنا وواقع شعبنا بين الخيام أوحت به جثث العرات العرات ضحية اللص الهمام بقيادة الغرب الحقود اللد عداء السلام من حقك أوصال الجريمة في دياجير الظلام 
فغدوت التحف العراة مشردا دون الأنام. This is our story and the facts about our people living in tents, inspired by the corpses of the victims of the so-called civilized West and by the leadership of the dollar, the greatest enemy of peace and tranquility, which spun the threads of the crime in the very deep darkness. As a result, Palestinians became homeless as scattered seeds among the nations of the world. قد كان مسكننا هنا لدى المروج الناضرة في سهل يافا في الجليل وفي ظلال الناصرة كنا صغارا لا نرى إلا الحدائق الزاهرة في بقعة قد بوركت وسمت كأرض طاهرة فإذا بناقوس الخيانة والظروف القاهرة We the Palestinians used to denizen there in the prolific green meadows in the plains of Yafa the Galilee and under the shades of Nazareth. We were youngsters who smell only the fragrance and the aura of the blossoms of garden flowers on a spot that is blessed and in a holy land where the bells of treasons banged and the unsurmountable circumstances fell upon us. بلفور قد وعد اليهود بأرضنا وطنا جديدا وعلى مسانع هيئة التضليل فيأتي اليهود وليخرج العرب الكرام إلى الصحارة كالعبيد العدل ولا وانقضى في, الظل في ظل قانون فريد المجرمون المالكون ومالك الأرض الشريد Balfour disseminated his declaration promising the Jewish people a homeland our terrain to be yours, theirs and the dream of the Jewish people come true thanks to the UN the Jewish people had to huddle from all corners of the globe to disroot us and ordain that Arabs should be an edifice swept out. In a conformity with the unique, unique statute, the criminal dispossessed the land, and the real proprietors are disrooted and thrown out. وهنا انطلقنا للفداء بثورة كالمنجل. دكت صروح المعتدين فسل روابي القصل. سل بيجن السفاح عن يافا وكأس الحنظل. واللد باعثة الكفاح حصادها بالمنجل ما قصوا الأهلون من رفح لرأس الكرمل. For this reason and for that we have to rebel in fighting the aggressors. Ask the hills of Al-Qastab. Ask Begin, the murderer, about Yafa and about the goblets of bitterness. Lidda, the inceptor of resistance and struggle. It's gathering by the sickle. My people never cease struggle from Rafah to the peaks of Carmel. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> That's a really beautiful words by your grandpa. That was really beautiful. Thank you both for sharing. Um, I'm going to bring up the next uh, speaker, who is Brad Thompson. Uh, Brad is going to give us some background on the legal battles that activists are facing today in Atlanta for the No Cop City campaign. Um, And he's a lawyer for the People's Law Office here in Chicago, and uh, he is representing one of the Stop uh, Cop City activists. Welcome, Brad. I'm, I'm really honored and happy to be here. Um, it's really an honor to me to be part of the legal team in this very important legal fight. And it's very encouraging to see so many people coming out in this room, coming out and showing a gesture of true solidarity. And that's particularly important because that's exactly what 
the state is trying to criminalize here. I have a copy of the indictment, and I'm going to read a short piece um, from this. And I'd encourage everyone, if you can get your hands on a copy of this, it's up online, to read this to see how outrageous this attack on the movement is. Social solidarity is the idea that individuals can live together without government and can provide for each other. (laughs) The notion... The notion of social solidarity relies heavily on the idea of human altruism. That is, individuals will voluntarily offer goods, services, and resources without anything compelling it. Anarchists anarchists often often shorten the term social solidarity simply into the term solidarity. And it is frequently woven into the speeches, statements and writings of anarchists. In addition to the term solidarity and other anarchist terms, (laughs) anarchists often weave the term mutual aid and collective into their jargon and writings. This is from the 105-page indictment against the 61 people facing RICO, which carries between 5 and 20 years in prison. And as outrageous and absurd and laughable that is, it also shows just what exactly the state is trying to do. And that is saying that the ideas, the concepts of solidarity, of mutualism, mutual aid, collectivism, people working together is what's a threat to the state. And that is what exactly the state is trying to repress. And so when people are coming together, people coming out here, the folks who are, go- who are down in Atlanta right now, everybody who's showing solidarity in whatever ways we can, it's extremely important, not only to the 61 defendants who are facing these charges, but to really push back against the state, to show the state that people will not be scared into shutting up and allowing the status quo to continue. Thank you. Um, so I want to turn to the next speaker, Maya Shenwar, who's a writer, editor, journalist, and organizer working to sculpt new ways for journalism to serve the public good and fuel social transformation. She is currently editor-at-large at Truthout, an independent social justice news publication, where she spent over 13 years as editor-in-chief. Maya has also recently founded the Truthout Center for Grassroots Journalism, she is the co-author with Victoria Law of Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms, and the author of Lockdown, Lockout, Why Prisons Don't Work and How We Could Do Better. Uh, she is the co-founder of the Chicago Community Bond Fund and organizes with the Love and Protect Collective in Chicago. Everyone, please welcome Maya. <laughs> everybody. It's good to be in community right now. And Brad, thank you for that reminder that we're going to win. Yeah, we are going to win. I'm reading from my book, Prison by Any Other Name. And when Victoria Law and I wrote this book, we primarily were focusing on the United States, on 
prisons by any other name, like electronic monitoring and house arrest and drug treatment centers that are locked down and psychiatric confinement and the sex offender registries. But I also want to point out, particularly in this moment, that prisons by any other name also include Gaza, which has been an open-air prison for many, many years at this point, under Israel's crushing blockade. And now Israel is targeting that incarcerated population with rapid, rapid genocide. And I think that we need to fix our minds on the fact that these state violences are interconnected. And as an anti-Zionist Jewish person, I'm very conscious that this violence is being, being enacted in the name of safety, in the name of Jewish safety. And as prison abolitionists, we have to dismantle the idea that state violence can ever create safety. That's the lie that they're becoming. It is about safety. It justifies every single shitty, violent, catastrophic, genocidal thing they do. So when you hear that word safety, mm-hmm. be suspicious. <laughs> So I'm going to read a a little bit um, from this book. When we challenge the ways that the prison industrial complex has expanded beyond prison walls, people often ask, if not this, then what? Given how many essential resources like social services, health care, and education are linked to the prison nation, it's easy to wonder whether it's possible to truly move beyond the prison. The good news is that for as long as there have been prisons and prison-like institutions, there have been people imagining and creating a world without them. Prisons didn't exist for most of human history, and even today, plenty of truly non-prison strategies are already in practice regularly all around us. So the question is not, can prisons go away? The question is, how do we make them go away? And how do we do so in a way that doesn't generate new oppressive institutions? How do we pursue the abolition of prison in all of its manifestations? The prospect of such transformation can be daunting. Sometimes it may feel that the systems we're critiquing, bad as they are, are too big and too difficult to replace. At times we may ask, isn't something better than nothing? The answer to this question is twofold. First, around the country, people are already building a whole lot of fruitful somethings devising non-carceral ways to confront conflict, violence, and other harms. The point is not to provide an alternative to every alternative to prison, but to look instead at the actual problems that we face 
and to take lessons from projects around the country that are addressing these problems in effective ways. The second answer is that sometimes the best alternative is nothing. For Monica Jones, the Arizona activist and student who was arrested and brought to a sex work rescue operation, the alternative to a forced rescue program is simple. No alternative. Leave people alone, she says. If they, don't, <laughs> if they don't need your help, you leave them alone. Jones says that rather than shoving sex workers into positions where they're being forcibly helped, often by criminalizing them, a truly helpful step would be to remove the criminal label. Make it more safe for them to exist in this world, she says. Moving toward real freedom will mean taking criminalization out of the equation. As long as we retain the idea of criminal, along with entrenched racialized ideas about who a criminal is and what they look like, alternatives will always involve the idea of putting people somewhere else. As long as we are creating the category of a human being who is lesser, who is marked as unfit for regular society, there will always be a push to siphon off those individuals, to ensure that they are not with the rest of us on our streets, in our homes, in our society. Case in point, another prison extension, the sex offense registry. Robert Suttle, a Louisiana man who was convicted of intentional exposure to the AIDS virus, and now advocates against HIV criminalization, says the point of the registry is for what? By looking more closely at these structures of surveillance and confinement, it becomes clear that the sex offense registry is not helping people. There is no evidence whatsoever that it prevents sexual violence. It actually foments both institutional and interpersonal violence against registered people, preventing them from accessing basic resources like housing and making them vulnerable to vigilante attacks as it makes their private information public. It does not do what it purports to do, reduce sexual harm. And what it does do is make it very difficult for those in its clutches to work their way toward transformed lives in which they can support themselves and contribute to their communities. It's helpful to return to Sadie Baker's litmus test for potential solutions. And this is the litmus test. We must examine every individual part of the system critically by asking, does this specific thing help? or hurt oppressed people. One strategy that does not pass the litmus test is pouring funding into police training to improve <laughs> officers' responses to situations like mental health crises. Calls for increased police training often just push more resources into policing, ignoring officers' roles as purveyors of harm 
and fear. As Baker says, I don't want my crisis counselor to be open carrying a gun. Any authentic solution must work toward redefining safety as separate from policing and imprisonment. Thank you, Mahia. And we know, right, that the police foundation and the Atlanta City uh, officials and politicians are using public safety, right, as a way to uh, reinforce the ideas that, you know, that we need this pu uh, police training facility, right? When instead it's about building more legitimacy for the police, building larger policing structures in Atlanta. So thank you, Maya, for that. So next up, I want to introduce uh, Bill Ayers, who is a social justice activist, teacher, distinguished professor of education at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and author of two memoirs, Fugitive Days and Public Enemy. Everyone, let's welcome Bill Ayers. Thank you. I also like to say like an OG, but I don't know if that was like cool. OG, what's yeah, it mean? Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, the memoirs are in the back, and my book, uh, Demand the Impossible, A Radical Manifesto, is in the back. I was asked to read briefly. I'm going to read from a forthcoming book, and the title of the book is When Freedom is the Question, Abolition is the Answer. Reflections on Collective Solidarity and Liberation. And I could be arrested in Atlanta, I know, for just using those <laughs> words. But um, so this book will be out in the summer. And um, I'm going to read a tiny bit from near the beginning. This is a good moment to reflect once more on the question of freedom, to explore its history and to illuminate its dimensions, to investigate where we are on the clock of the world and to wonder about where we might go next. The word freedom is practically applicated on our American minds. We're born free in the freest country on earth, we're told repeatedly. And it seems that individuals and corporations alike, people from the left and the reactionary right, embrace freedom as a positive force and a, tr and a trumpeted value in some vague and general sense. So we have the sanctimonious freedom caucus. The, uh, the opportunistic Freedom Unlimited card from Chase Bank. <laughs> <laughs> the courage to be free by the insufferable Ron DeSantis oh. and the electrifying Black Freedom Movement. What does anyone mean by freedom in particular? The answer is often difficult to pin down, but let's try. This moment can feel like the absolute worst of times, a new and escalating Cold War with China, a hot and destructive proxy war in Europe, a pre-announced genocide being executed right now against the Palestinian people in Gaza, raging racialized police violence unchecked, environmental collapse on full display, fragile and often anemic democratic institutions on life support, religious author authoritarianism on the rise, and women's bodily integrity under sustained assault. The overlapping crises can threaten to overwhelm us, but on a different day, or from a different angle of regard, these, these days can feel like the best of times. 26 million people took to the streets in 2020 in response to the police murder of George Floyd, the largest public outpouring for racial justice in history. Women across a wide political spectrum have refused to accept the medieval definition of their rights, and, and broad forces are on the march worldwide to resist plunder and extraction and to preserve life on Earth. 
I walk, I wake up each morning and glance at the poet Mary Oliver's hopeful words taped to my wall, capturing a sense of a universal contradiction, just to be alive on this fresh morning in the broken world. Charles Dickens would understand our predicament at once, the winter of despair and the spring of hope, an age of foolishness and an age of wisdom, darkness in mortal combat with light. It's important to remember that life is never one thing in isolation from every other thing. Yes, there's exploitation, but there's also resistance. Progress, yes, also backlash. Cop city for sure, but also us. More than one thing is happening at once and we have to look for it. If we freeze our focus or draw the frame too tight, we can sink into despair and miss the dynamic, noisy, frenetic, magnificent of life, magnificence of life as it's actually happening. So I want to expand and redraw the boundaries of how we see and think about freedom, as well as the reality that spreads out before us, the world that we encounter each day. I want to rethink where one thing ends and another thing begins, of where we look and what we look for. Contradiction, in Viet Thanh Nguyen words, is the perpetual body odor of humanity. Free Palestine. Um, all right, moving along. Thank you for those for those words, and we're looking forward to reading that. <laughs> Our next spe uh, speaker and reader uh, is Iman Abdeladi, who is an academic activist and artist based in Chicago. Her research at the as a faculty at the University of Chicago focuses on gender differences and community trajectories of Muslim Americans. She has spent many years organizing, involved in the movement for Palestinian liberation. Black Lives Matter, counter-surveillance and abolitionism, Marxist feminist mobilizations, and workplace struggles. She is currently coordinating the Muslim Alliance for Gender and Sexual Diversity, a national organization that provides support and builds community by and for queer Muslims. She maintains an active creative practice that includes performance art and essay and poetry writing. Her writing has appeared in Jacobin, Mufta, and other publications. Please, everybody, put your hands together for Thank you so much um, for hosting me. Um, as a Palestinian, I have to say that um, it feels very healing to be in this space with all of you. Um, I also want to give a huge shout out to Pilsen Community Books, who has been such an ally. I honestly could tear up just thinking about having this space um, so available to us. The worker owners here have been just magnificent. And I know our community has has been really touched by the solidarity. Um, so this is a co-authored novel that I wrote with my dear friend and comrade, um, Emmy O'Brien. Um, it's called Everything for Everyone, an oral history of the New York Commune 2052-2072. Um, in this novel, we project ourselves as little old ladies into the future <laughs> and um, uh, into a, a, a revolutionary future. Um, and we are uh, effectively doing these oral histories with people who participated in the revolutionary transition. Um, so each uh, chapter is a fictional interview between one of us and uh, a fictional character. Um, and so uh, what I want to read from today is um, a, a chapter called Kaukab Hassan um, on liberating the Levant. Fun story, our, um, we run a culture, Lemis and I are part of running a cultural co salon called um, 
uh, Salon Kawakib, which was named after this character. <laughs> um, so um, follow us on Instagram <laughs> at Salon underscore or dot Kawakib. Okay, I'm the worst plugger <laughs> on the planet. Absolutely. Oh, dot. It's dot. Dot. Thank you. <laughs> um, anyway, so um, this character, um, I, as future me, is interviewing her on September 20th, 2016. Uh, 2067 in Brooklyn. Um, and she's someone who grew up in, um, uh, uh, in Bay Ridge, which is, um, a very Palestinian heavy, uh, neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York. And she, um, basically is a burnout. And when, um, she's 16, she leaves, um, to a Palestine that is in the middle of, um, liberating itself. Um, so I'm going to read just a few, uh, pages here from this chapter. Um, so I asked her, how'd you end up moving to Palestine? Hassan, I'd grown up hearing about Palestine through my grandparents and my parents, and it was in the air in Bay Ridge. Honestly, I'd been dreaming of Palestine my whole life. Sometimes I'd have to remind myself that I'd never actually been there because it was just so present. It was always there. They wanted us to forget, you know, that was the whole plan. The Zionists, they thought the old will die and the young will forget. We made it our business never to forget. Every house in this area was little Palestine. We took it with us anywhere we went, used any chance to remind ourselves and everyone else that we were an exiled people, that our land had been stolen. I can't believe they thought we'd do anything else. Anyway, where were we? Well, I'd ask you how you ended up in Palestine. Oh yeah, when the uprising first began, I wanted to go to Gaza. I wanted to go. Gaza had been under siege for like 30 years or something, since way before I was born. No one in or out. People had water for a few hours a day, electricity at random times. It was a big fucking prison with two and a half million people crammed in and they'd bomb it every few years. Brutal shit, just relentless. And people from Gaza would just have to rebuild over and over and over. When I was four, I remember they bombed those were some of my first memories, watching those buildings fall on stream. People sifting through the debris of their homes and all that. Anyway, when I was 16 and Saurat Gaza started, I was ready. You didn't have to tell me twice. I had been working odd jobs around the neighborhood, mostly under the table, since I was 14. Had a little money saved up, just enough for a ticket. I asked, they let you in? She says, no, who? The Zayas? <laughs> of course not. We flew into Egypt, hitched a ride to the Sinai and crossed the border. Who's we? My friend Talal was in a similar boat as me, one of my only friends growing up, also an Arab burnout. We decided we'd just go, and we did. We spoke. He spoke better Arabic than me at the time. Mine got better eventually, of course, but at the, as the, at the time, he could get by. So I asked, so you get to Egypt and you go to the Sinai. I thought those borders were closed. Hassan, well, Egypt was falling apart. They had had an uprising in 2010 or something, 2012, can't remember, but they had overthrown the government. Then the military took over for a couple years. The military reign lasted decades, but it was like everywhere else where when the economy started collapsing in the 30s, they couldn't keep up. There were massive famines because so much of the Nile had dried up and Egypt, Egypt couldn't grow food anymore. Plus, the heat waves were killing more and more people every year. When the markets crashed, they were truly, truly fucked. By the time I went, well, this was 2036, there were riots all the time, mostly over bread and grains. It started in Port Said because they had always had big unions there. So yeah, the Egyptian army was kind of distracted and all that. 
asked, I say, gotcha. And that was also happening all over the Arab world, right? Hassan, oh, hell yeah. Syria was still in tatters after the civil war in the 2010s and 2020s. Iraq had never recovered from a U.S. invasion in the early 2000s. Jordan was barely hanging in there. It was all a fucking mess and people were over it. The Levant was where the first governments fell, you know. Everyone was realizing they had nothing left to lose and it was time to fuck shit up. I say, good reason for an uprising. Yeah, exactly. I mean, think about it. Why would you care if you're getting arrested for protesting when you can't feed yourself or your family anymore? For so long, these fuckwads had everyone convinced that if you just put your head down, you could get by on whatever meager shit there was. But eventually, that was obviously not the case anymore. It didn't matter how quiet or obedient you were. There was nothing to eat. The whole region imploded. Yeah, so uprisings everywhere. Egyptian army really could barely keep that border to Gaza closed, even when they weren't busy quashing uprisings. By then, it was an open secret that if you could make it to the Sinai, you could get through. I asked, how'd you make it to the Sinai? Dollars. The dollar hadn't fallen yet, and we bribed our way through. The Egyptian pound was in the toilet by then. It was like 100 pounds to a dollar. I'm telling you, people were starving. So yeah, even as teenagers, whatever American money we had got us through. Plus, Egyptians had never been down with Israel. Their government was, but they weren't. Egyptians always thought that was some fuck shit. So when we said we were Palestinian, when we were from Gaza, and we were just going home, people were down with that. That's beautiful. It was. It really was. Um, so tell me more about the final intifada. And I'll stop there so that you can get the book and buy it. <laughs> so Barbara Ransby is a historian, author, and longtime activist and organizer. She has been involved in the Black Freedom Movement, feminist struggles, and social and economic justice projects for nearly 40 years. She is known best for her award-winning biography of civil rights icon Ella Baker, entitled Ella Baker, A Radical Democratic Vision. She has published two other books, one of which is Making All Black Lives Matter, Reimagining Freedom in the 21st Century. And she has a forthcoming book, tentatively titled Making Revolution Irresistible. Please uh, allow me to introduce Barbara Ransky. How are y'all doing? How are y'all doing? Good, good, good. You're supposed to do a call and response. I'm the last one, so I have the obligation to be brief. And I will. <laughs> You've already heard a lot of powerful words. Um, you know, we come together tonight as bombs are dropping on Gaza. Uh, and we think of Tortuguita and the struggle in Atlanta. And they are deeply, deeply related, as other uh, speakers have said. We see the criminalization of dissent, the criminalization of organizing and resistance. And of course, Palestinian people know that very well because that's the nature of occupation. Um, so I'm glad to see so many people out. We have to keep up the pressure on all fronts um, in difficult times. A lot of my work has been, uh, I write about radical black women. And so lots and lots of FBI files and lots and lots of people mm -hmm. Uh, repressed by the state, so we know what they can do. Um, so I'm going to read two very brief uh, passages. One is a Black feminist statement in solidarity with the people of Gaza, and it was um, read in Washington, D.C. after the march on November 4th at a gathering for, uh, organized by Black for Palestine, which I'm a part of. <clears throat> 
Who are my people in this crucible moment of war and genocide as we witness the dirty process of ethnic cleansing unfold before the eyes of the world? Who are my people as tiny brown children are bombed in southern Gaza as they flee their homes following the evacuation route prescribed by their bombers? Who are my people as my friend's cousin gives birth in total darkness in Gaza City and incubators are shut down as the power is cut off in hospitals throughout the Strip? No food, no water, no fuel, just bombs. In Alzada, whole buildings are leveled. Apartments where families cooked meals, lovers made love, children played games, and girls danced with their friends are all gone now. There is a hole in the heart of the Jabalia refugee camp. That hole is a bomb crater beneath which unknown and unnamed bodies are entombed. A broken man cradles the da his daughter's little body, which has also been broken. A woman wails for the loss of her son. No parts of his body have been found. Who are my people in this crucible moment of violence and destruction in the name of defense? I was born a black woman and I became a Palestinian, wrote our beloved sister, the radical feminist poet, Jim Jordan. In that simple quote, she interrogates essentialist notions of identity and blood and belonging and challenges us to be bigger than all that. Who are your people? Ella Baker would ask visitors and strangers. Who claims you and who do you claim in this world? And most importantly, who do you stand with in times of crisis and despair? We do not need a DNA test or genealogy search to know who our people are in this moment. If I choose to stand on the side of freedom, my people are oppressed people all over the world. People who are suffering under varied and violent forms of injustice and oppression, from Haiti to Hebron, from Birmingham to Bethlehem, from Shatab prison in Northern Israel to Stateville prison in central Illinois. I claim as my people all who are standing up to occupation and dispossession, heteropatriarchy and white supremacy, colonialism and settler colonialism, anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, environmental pillage, carceral violence, and authoritarianism. My people are those truth-tellers and freedom fighters of the world who are speaking truth to power in dozens of languages. Silent vigils organized by women in black on the street corners in Barcelona and Tokyo and Madrid saying no, no to war and occupation. Aswat, the queer Palestinian freedom fighters, saying that the liberation of Palestine must also include them. Courageous voices inside the halls of power refusing to be silenced. Rashida, Corey, Ilhan, we are with you because you are with us. And the passionate Jewish protesters that shut down Grand Central Station in New York City and the Statue of Liberty, chanting not in our name and never again means never again to anyone. So the next, um, very brief, again, and sitting so patiently, a brief section I'll read is from my last book, which is um, Making All Black Lives Matter, Reimagining Freedom in the 21st Century. And this was a hard uh, book to write. It was a movement that I was very much a part of. I work closely with the movement for Black Lives. Um, and I usually write about dead people. So I was writing about people very much alive and in motion and very close to me. Uh, it's the epilogue of the book. And it's my reflections on the activists in that movement. 
I struggled to complete this book while engaging in and supporting the ongoing resistance against a new proto-fascist turn in U.S. politics, one in which racism, misogyny, and all varieties of xenophobia are alarmingly pronounced. In my effort to make sense of an ever-changing national and global landscape, I hope this book makes some small contribution to the freedom-making work that lies ahead of us. If Alicia Garza's initial Facebook post in 2013 was a love letter to Black people, this epilogue is a love letter to the organizers in the Movement for Black Lives and a tribute to their increasingly expansive vision. First of all, thank you. Thank you for your courage and your passion. And this could also apply to our comrades in Atlanta right now uh, and folks engaged in resistance in Palestine. First of all, thank you. Thank you for your courage and your passion for your savvy and your boldness. Thank you for facing the bloody reality embedded in the historical fibers of this country and have become all too routine and saying no. And in saying no, you brazenly reject the bourgeois trappings of respectability. In other words, you say hell no to state violence in its crudest form, as well as to the slow death that racial capitalism and its neoliberal practices have caused over time. Your practice reflects an understanding that not only when that only when elites cannot buy you off, dazzle you with their power, intoxicate you with a sense of your own importance and tempt you with trinkets and access to money and celebrity, can you truly be engaged in a liberation process of freedom making. For many of you, this time has come. When amazing Chicago organizer Aislinn Pulley declined an invitation to the White House without blinking, because she did not want to be a part of a photo op with no outcome, we all felt a little bit freer. When black brunch protesters strolled into fancy eateries and began impolitely talking about black death, breaking the bubble of denial that surrounds yuppie privilege, we all knew that we were a little bit freer. When you refused to be Al Sharpton's protege or political accessories, <laughs> or the human backdrop to his press conferences, we knew we were a little bit freer. When Bree Newsom climbed up a South Carolina flagpole and yanked down that Confederate flag, yeah. we all felt a little bit freer. And when the respected Southern-based organizer, Mary Hooks, told us that as only she could, to pool our dollars, to use them as crowbars to pry open the steel cages and free our sisters during the Black Mamas bailout campaign, we all felt a little bit freer. Acts of defiance, disruption, and insurgent rule-breaking are ways we delink from the politics of the routine, the politics of acclamation, of compromise, and collaboration. To paraphrase James Baldwin, it is when we demand the impossible that we come closest to real freedom. What do I see when I look out at this cohort of activists? I see the faces of 13-year-olds who peered out of the narrow windows at the juvenile detention center to see hundreds of young activists marching through the chilly Chicago night, holding up signs that said, we love you. I see you on ladders wrapped in chains, holding flags and banners. I see you daringly wading into rush hour traffic on major highways to force people to look at the reality of black death, determined in the spirit of no pasaran. I see Josh and Jasmine peering from behind cold steel bars and I see Marshawn dead on the steps of the Ohio State House. I see you crying quietly at the back of the church during Alton Sterling's funeral and standing alongside Eric's daughter, Tamir's mother, Rakia's brother. 
I see you in a hot, crowded little house in Havana drinking beer and talking politics in two languages, in a dusty refugee camp near Ramallah, in a favela in Rio after meeting with the landless workers movement, comparing notes about displacement, and in a shanty town outside Joburg trying to make sense of a revolution gone astray. Above all, I hear you insisting that this is a world family and the struggle goes far beyond the borders that the colonizers have carved out in the earth. And even when we disagree, we are dancing the same dance. Finally, I see you building political altars, paying homage to the wisdom of grandmothers and grandfathers, knowing all the while your eyes, your eyes will witness and your hands will build a world that they could only imagine. When you chant, we know that we will win in spiraling crescendo. I believe you. I believe you with love and hope and expectation all wrapped around you in a fierce and unrelenting embrace. Whoa. Before we come to a close, let's note that these terrible times, this disequilibrium and cognitive dissonance, this strange new world we're waking up to, also provide several powerful, teachable moments if we choose to dive into the wreckage and make a serious attempt to go deeper. That is, if we choose to honestly confront and rethink the taken for granted. So with the focus on deep study, on teaching and learning, you can find resources on our website. I recommend wholeheartedly Rashid Khalidi's The Hundred Years' War Against Palestine, which is now number three on the New York Times paperback bestselling list, and Nathan Thrall's incredible One Day in the Life of Abed Salama, recently published, and he was recently in Chicago doing an event with Barbara Ransby. Okay, folks, let's swim as hard as we can toward that distant shore, shimmering and just visible on the far horizon, that land of joy and justice, peace and freedom. Let's stay all the way human. Thanks to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger at the generative and provocative podcast, Ergo, co-conspirators Roxana Espos and Palace Shaw. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life the embodiment of solidarity with all people, from Palestine to Chicago to Atlanta, and from the river to the sea. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.